Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People Gift Card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem in any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Paul Bangay is Australia's most sought-after garden designer. Known for his mastery of scale, balance, form and colour, Paul draws on his lifelong study of the natural and classical worlds to create gardens around the globe. Today I'm talking to Paul Bangay about his new book, A Life in Garden Design, an illustrated memoir exploring the evolution of one of Australia's finest design minds. Paul Bangay, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Let's reach back into your childhood for a moment. What was your very first experience of a garden? Um, my first recollection of a garden is uh, we, I grew up in a garden that was sort of the outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne. It still had remnant eucalypts in it. And I can remember sitting in um, a patch of daisies at the base of a eucalypt tree, a remnant eucalypt tree. And that's my earliest recollection of, of the garden and being in the garden. I understand that your parents were actually keen garden as well. How, how did that play out in your life? Well, they were very clean gardens, especially my mother. She was, they were very proactive in the Australian native plant movement. They were, they were big into the Society for Growing Australian Native Plants. Um, they bought a property down at Wilson's Prom, which is the southernmost point of, of mainland Australia. And they bought that with an, uh, with other enthusiasts of, of, of the Australian native plant movement, including Gwen and Roger Elliott, who are, are quite big in the movement and still are. Um, and they they reforested that and re replanted all that up with with native plants. So they were big into native plants. The garden I grew up with started off as a as a great Australian native plant garden, and um, my mother was just very passionate about it. And um, I think it wore off onto onto all us kids, especially me. You also kept goats, and I, I would have thought that goats who have a propensity to eat just about everything and anything. That might be a major obstacle to building and maintaining a garden. Where did goats fit into that part of your gardening life? Well, so we were very, very lucky. And I think I think um, my sense of scale and my love of the countryside came from this. We grew up next to a 20-acre small farm. And it was probably always just more like a hobby farm, but it was an Edwardian hobby farm and had a lovely old Edwardian house on it. And the owners had died some years before and left it. Um, the the caretaker could live there for the for her natural life, so she was there for another twenty or thirty years afterwards. And we I became great friends with her, and she let me roam around this twenty acres, and in fact did more than that roam. I was allowed to have a big vegetable garden, and I had goats, so I had a big pen, and uh, the old some of the old big old chicken sheds I converted into like pens and uh, yards for for my goats. So the goats were very much at a distance from the plants they could eat. How were you at milking goats and what happened to that milk? Yeah, well, I learned to milk quite well, quite quite fast and you had to milk twice a day, 365 days of the year. So for a young boy, you know, um, and almost into my early teenage years, it was quite um, an ordeal. Well, I didn't find an ordeal at the time to, uh, to, to be sort of, you know, weighed down with that sense of huge sense of responsibility and routine, like it was a real routine. But milking came, you know, you learn to milk goats quite easily. And I used to sell some of the milk. So we used to, I used to supply the family with milk and some people in the area who I think were lactose intolerant, um, as you can have goat's milk if you're lactose intolerant. And you developed an early passion for ferns too. What was the appeal in ferns? 
We used to go for summer holidays down to Apollo Bay, which we just rented a house down there. And we used to go up into the Otways, which has some of the best fern gullies in Australia. It's got some of the rem- really beautiful remnant rainforests of Australia. In fact, it's got deciduous beech trees. That's about the only spot on mainland Australia that has has those beech trees. But the fern gullies were just magnificent. We used to always be going up into the fern gullies exploring. And for me, as a child, they were just magical. Like, you know, walking underneath those big tree ferns and it was all damp. It had glowworms in it. And I was just mesmerised by all the ferns. So I collected the ferns and grew them it was a very sort of early um endeavor in horticulture for me you know i, I used to take my my, my uh, maidenhair ferns to the local show and and show those off so as far as horticulture goes you know my father built me a greenhouse and i used to like propagate the ferns in there and nurture the ferns in there so yeah it was a very sort of um preliminary sort of start to my horticultural career and at what seems to have been a fairly freewheeling early life Burnley College was your first taste of institutional education in horticulture. What was that experience like and how did it influence your direction? So I think that Burnley, which is now part of Melbourne University, was one of the best courses you could do in Australia if you wanted to do do landscape design, which I did, or horticulture um, for two reasons. I mean, Edna Walling attended the school. That's where Edna Walling went to school um, and she learned there. But what they did is they taught you how to garden as well as design. So, you know, it was a very important part of the learning process that you could actually cut back the plants, propagate the plants, identify the plants, put your hands in the soil and, you know, have all the plant ID and all the technical knowledge that you needed to become a landscape designer. So it varies to landscape architecture where they just go to college and do just the, the the theory. We had the practice and the theory, in, in, and it was a beautiful garden. Um, the Burnley Horticultural College is one of the best gardens in, in Melbourne and still is. Part of that experience was visiting Cruden Farm, at that time the home of Dame Elizabeth Murdoch. And in some sense, your life has turned full circle because in 2012 you were made trustee of that garden. What responsibilities does a trustee have, both for its history and for its future? So quite a big responsibility. There's there's six trustees. Um, there's one from every one of the family members, one from every one of Dame Elizabeth's fam, uh, children, and there's two, three other trustees. And it's quite a big. We have to, you know, we have to make sure that the heritage of the property is upheld. We are responsible for the development of it. We're now putting in a big walking track around. We are putting in a, a new room, a, a great big sort of multi-purpose room that we can do lectures on landscape design, on horticulture. As a trustee, you you are entrusted with the long-term life and health of that property and and of the garden, most importantly of the garden. So it's, it's quite a big responsibility. And it's something of a mecca for gardeners and students of horticulture too. Yeah, I think so. Look, when I was when I was at, 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 at Burnley, it was a big deal to go over to Cruden Farm and have a look around. There was Bollebeck, which is based on Mount Masson, and Cruden Farm, and they were the, the the sort of old grand dams of sort of of, of gardens. And the gardens were beautiful. Edna Walling had had worked at Cruden Farm, and visiting there, I think it less so now, but I think back then it was definitely sort of you know a, a great thing to be able to go and visit. You were still studying at Burnley College when an opportunity arose to design your first garden as a professional. Aside from it being your first, was it something of a landmark, a confirmation of the direction you were taking? Well, I was just very lucky to get this gig. Like, you know, it was for the Kimberley family that started Just Jeans, and they had bought a big sheep station in the Western District of um, Victoria. 
and they got me along. They were interviewing a few people, and they got me along to look at it. And but luckily, they saw some talent and some promise and went with me. And, you know, it was a very, very important part of, of me getting established because it was quite an important house, quite a big property. And the garden we went on to create with their help and with their enthusiasm, it turned out to be a great garden. And, st- and it's still there and still, you know, still much loved. So it was a very good start. I got, you know, it was, being able to give that opportunity was was incredible for me as a young student. Gardens, garden design, gardening doesn't happen without other people. And there have been many friends and mentors along the way that have supported you and guided you. But two in particular, John Coote and David Hicks. John Coote, you write about a relationship characterised by friction. (laughs) Good friction, though, it was. (laughs) We always fought and always made up, I think is what you write. <laughs> well, he was very good at causing problems. <laughs> he loved to stir. He he loved to stir the pot, and he loved a reaction. And he was a, a lot of fun, like enormous amount of fun. And when he caused that friction, he did it in the name of fun, and that was always that was always great. I mean, I find that now the whole industry is very serious. Like, there's not much humour, and John did bring humour to that to that industry definitely, and made and made the whole process just full of fun. Now, friction makes for good pearls, but does friction make for good garden design and beautiful gardens? It does. It definitely well, it does when you, you know that I think the synergy is very important. The synergy between the architect, the interior designer, and the landscape designer. And certainly John and I had great synergy between the, the interiors and the gardens. And in fact, John used to always do a lot of the architecture as well. So that friction, you know, he would challenge. I think the friction, you know, challenging can be part of the friction, but it, it, we always ended up with a great result. So I think probably yes. And David Hicks, a different kind of relationship with him? completely different kind of relationship we had a you know it was a it was a a relationship based on great mutual admiration i mean more so for me because um he was one of the greatest designers of the you know of, of the last century later part of the last century and to be able to be um in his company and to shadow him while he was at work and he used to take me around gardens was such a huge privilege for a young designer and he wrote the foreword for my first book, which, you know, got that off to a great start. There was just so much to be learned from David Hicks, really. There was a lot to be learned. He didn't, so we didn't never work together, but I was, you know, he was a mentor in the true sense of the word. I learned a lot from him. 1994 seems to have been a turning point in your career. Winning a scholarship set up by the Melbourne Arts Centre allowed you the freedom to travel internationally. Very few things broaden the mind more than travel, but what realisations came out of that opportunity? I mean, still to this day, travel is, is the greatest thing that inspires me. Um, I was, I had my own nursery. I was, I was sort of anchored to a to a retail nursery in Melbourne, and then I, I was awarded that scholarship, and um, that allowed me to travel around the world for six months, anywhere I liked, and I could go wherever I liked, and I could nominate who I went and worked with, or who I went and visited, or what gardens I went to see. And I think that the most important thing was that it uncoupled me from the retail from the retail business. So that I, when I came back, I was able to work truly just as a landscape designer. That was a big thing for me. But to go around the world and see um, how other designers worked, um, the gardens they created, and also to see a whole lot of gardens, you know, historical gardens, new gardens, especially from areas that were sort of the same climatic zone as, as Australia, was a great eye-opener for me. So that, that was a very, very important and fundamental part of my learning. During your travels, was there any particular place, any particular area where you thought to yourself, yes, that's the kind of garden I would like to design and, and to build? Probably more European 
back then when it was on that scholarship, you know, and David Hicks was part of that scholarship. So I went to see his garden and I looked at that garden and thought, yes, this is this is the way I would like to go. It was very masculine. It was very strong. It was very architectural. It was just very green and clipped. And that definitely was was a way that, you know, I, I saw as a, as, a, as a starting point for me in garden design. A lot of your designs seem to have this very strong sense of lines of sight, if you like, uh, perspective. Is that something you took from the classical world or elsewhere? Um, I think definitely from the classical world, but I think that, you know, leading, your, leading, being led around the garden by sight lines and focal points is a very important part of any garden, or it should be, because, you, you know, unless it's a small courtyard you see in one glance, it's nice not to see the whole garden in one glance and to be led around with focal points. I think that the sense of intrigue and drama you get from that is very important. And so that probably is a little bit of a signature, yes. Let's talk about what you do these days. One of the things that inspires this question is, a brief in the book, and I was fascinated to see the contents of a brief uh, from this prospective client and listing the various things they loved and wanted to see, something like a shopping list, really. I wondered how that shopping list, with its many conflicting elements, could ever become a garden design, let alone a garden. <laughs> well, quite often briefs can be very confusing, and quite often there are conflicting things in there. So I think the job of a, of a good landscape designer or any designer is to sort of edit it down and take the best out of the brief. But it's very important to listen to a, to a client and, and and to their brief because they're the ones that have got to live in it. They're the ones that have got to garden with it. And they're the ones that the custodians of that, of that garden that you've created for all time. Briefs can often be quite long and there can be a lot of conflict in there. So it's important that you do edit them down and take the best out of them. One would think training as a crisis negotiator might be helpful in that. <laughs> A marriage counsellor, yes, as well. How do you reconcile the two or sometimes more uh, visions of a garden? Because there might be a client, there's you, but there's always other people who want to have their input. And increasingly, there is more and more people who want to have their input. They come to you for a reason. You listen to them for what they want in terms of recreational use in the garden. But you've just got to be quite strong sometimes as to... Um, if you think, if you really believe in what you're doing, it's very important you put that point of view across. I believe if you want to find the purest expression of a designer, you have to look at their own home. Now, if I were to visit St Ambrose Farm, for example, what would I see that would reflect that belief? Well, the thing is about St Ambrose Farm, it was 20 years ago now. So I think, you know, there's a couple of points there. One, you always want to remain relevant, so you don't want to remain static you want to always be keep developing so St Ambrose Farm certainly at the time when I created which was 28 years ago when I created it um was a was a real reflection of of my thoughts my philosophies my design goals you know it was very formal it was very straight lined it was very very geometric it had great sort of focal points and axes through it and clipped hedges everywhere so that at the time really did reflect you know my my, my thoughts and and how I thought a garden should look not today. Would I see and experience something completely different or similar perhaps uh, on a visit to Stonefields? Stonefields, is, again, is um, a garden I created 20 years ago. We, we we're always trying to soften it. So what happened, you know, 20 years ago, we were still very formal. We were very sort of uptight in, in a way. And now everyone's become a lot more casual, more relaxed. So, the, you know, straight lines have gone, organic shapes have come in. Um, it's a lot more relaxed and, and casual the way we use the garden as well. So probably if you if you go to Stonefields, you won't see what happens now, but there are parts of what happens 
now. So we're always trying to change planting schemes to remain relevant using plants that, you know, um, we think are more appropriate to, to the way we use um, plants today and the way the climate is today. So there are changes, but it's probably not how we would create a garden in this very moment. When we look at the beautiful photographs in this book, we imagine that a garden is a static thing. But in fact, that's not the case, is it? No, it shouldn't be static. It really shouldn't. You should be always open to changing it. We've always struggled with this question is, you know, we've got a garden that's well known and much loved and people for love it how it is, but it's not how I would like to see a garden today. So, you know, do you completely change it? Do you hold on to areas that, are, you know, are quite formal or do you make them more casual? And then you go back and look at gardens that were created 50, 80 years ago and they're still loved and they've been they've been kept static, fairly static over the years. So it, it, it's sort of a very conflicting question for me. I still haven't got the answer to. We're facing one of the greatest challenges to humanity in the form of climate change. In Australia, we live with the inevitable cycle of drought and of flood and water uncertainty. Under these circumstances, what are the consequences for garden design of the future? I think the one thing that we've all got to come to terms with, I don't know how you design a garden for flood. I think that's almost impossible. But we certainly have to design gardens for the dry that's coming and the lack of rain that's coming. We have to make them hardy. We've got to, we've got to choose plants that are more drought hardy. Um, we've got to choose, we've got to integrate plants endemic to this country. So we're, we're sort of using some native plants. We're using some plants from the Mediterranean areas, you know, similar clients to ours. I've visited Iran. I've, I've visited Syria and seen the gardens there and seen the plants that they use there in very hot, dry climates. So I think that, you know, adapting the planting um, schemes to to suit dry gardens, I think, is very important. That's the, that's the number one thing we can do. I think creating shade is another important. I mean, it's going to become a lot hotter and the sun's going to become more intense. And so as much shade as you can get in the garden, I think, is also very, very, very important. And um, the, the, the big culprit that we have to all worry about is lawns. Like lawns are the biggest users of water. You know, what do we replace a lawn with? And it's still much loved by Australians. Getting rid of a lawn is a very difficult thing. My final question to you is just about the everyday gardener. Your design work is more often not on a grand scale and you've got many resources at your disposal. But what about those gardeners like myself who have a more modest vision for their home environment? What advice do you offer those people in terms of design and, and the things that we've discussed this afternoon? I think the most important thing I can offer people is like to keep it as simple as possible. Don't overcomplicate it. Like if you're not sure about something, always just keep, you know, choose less plants instead of more plants um, and, and sort of mass planting is a lot easier. Don't complicate it with um, or clutter it with, you know, with lots and lots of objects. So, you know, sort of up the scale a little bit. Um, keep it as simple as possible as you can. Experiment, like have fun in the garden. Experiment with plants. If you put some plants in, they don't work. Pull them out and put some other ones in. That's always that's what that's the definition of gardening for me. It's a place of great experimentation. Well, Bangay, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, and thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you. I've been talking to Paul Bangay about his new book, A Life in Garden Design. It's published by Thames and Hudson, and you can find it at GoodReadingMagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading Podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People Gift Card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.